everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well-aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen, and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by SWAN. Now this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it, as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year, so you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, so go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Stefan Kinsella, welcome back to the show. Hey, Robert. Glad to be here. Really enjoyed our last conversation. We're going to continue going further into Hoppe's excellent work, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And uh, I think the first topic we're going to be getting into today is this difference between private and public ownership or social ownership. Um, and so I'll read an excerpt here. Uh, this is from page 36 in the PDF that we're working off of. Hoppy writes, declaring everybody a co-owner of everything solves the problem of differences in ownership only nominally. It does not solve the real underlying problem, differences in the power to control. In an economy based on private ownership, the owner determines what should be done with the means of production. In a socialized economy, this can no longer happen, as there is no such owner. Nonetheless, the problem of determining what should be done with the means of production still exists and must be solved somehow, provided there is no pre-stabilized and pre-synchronized harmony of interest among all of the people, in which case no problems whatsoever would exist anymore, but rather some degree of disagreement. Only one... One view as to what should be done can in fact prevail and others must mutatis mutanda, mutandus be excluded. But then again, there must be inequalities between people. Someone's or some group's opinion must win over that of others. 
The difference between a private property economy and a socialized one is only how those will prevails. I'm sorry, how whose will prevails in cases of disagreement is to be determined. In capitalism, there must be somebody who controls and others who do not, and hence real differences among people exist. But the issue of whose opinion prevails is resolved by original appropriation and contract. In socialism, too, real differences between controllers and non-controllers must, of necessity, exist. Only in the case of socialism, the position of those whose opinion wins is not determined by previous usership or contract, but by political means. So I, I think we kind of hit on this last time that the essence of this social institution or normative structure we call property is who has the authority to control what assets. And as I read this, you know, that, that issue is always there no matter what. Someone has to be responsible for the things. But if you make it anything other than an individual, then you get into this weird political game where, where people are then fighting to be at the top of the political heap to have the say-so or the control over those assets. Um, whereas if it's just an individual, it's the actual, it's, it's more of a just system and that the person who did the work or acquired the thing through consensual exchange is the one that controls it. And, you know, it's, it's an equitable rule set that's applicable to everyone. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think what he's trying to do here, and I think uh, Rothbard uh, does this to some degree also when he talks about how you only have a few stark alternatives in ideal form of what how you can you know, r run the rules in society. And like one would be uh, a dictatorship where one guy rules everyone. Like a, a a guy that pretends to be God, basically. Um, another would be um, this kind of communism where everyone equally owns everyone else. And I think Hans points out somewhere in this book, and Rothbard points out elsewhere, if you had communism in the sense of everyone equally co-owning everything else, so we're totally equal, we would all we would all uh, die off because no one could do anything because you wouldn't be able to get the permission you needed to to ever act. If I just need to pick up a piece of bread to have a sandwich, I'm not the owner of it. Everyone in all 7 billion people on the earth are the co-owners, and by the time I got their permission, I would be dead. So co-ownership is simply not practical and not feasible. So I think what Hans is trying to do here is set up some kind of stark alternatives to show that the only remaining one that makes sense is the libertarian perspective. So he's saying if you define everyone as a co-owner, it, it solves one problem, but it doesn't solve – the problem that we need to actually be able to act and to get things done and to have a set of rules that everyone can re respect as fair. Okay. So, so that's his, his, his first point, right? Um, this, this point about pre-synchronized harmony of interest. So what he's saying is like, if we had a garden of Eden where there was no conflict, everyone operated in lockstep, like a bunch of synchronized swimmers, no one bumps into each other. Everyone knows their role, and there's never any conflict. Then you wouldn't need property rules at all. You wouldn't have social conflict. But because we do, we do have 
some possibility of disagreement or clashing over the use of these resources, we need some kind of rules. So I think also what he's getting at here is something I pointed out in my writing, which is that um, some people say that, um, oh, you guys, you libertarians believe in private property rights, right? So they try to identify our our political philosophy as being pro-property rights. But that's actually slightly incorrect because basically every political system has to have an allocation of property rights. Someone is in control and makes decisions about who can use a given resource. right? So there are, there's always property rights and property rules because we live in a world of scarce resources, and any system that's in control is going to have rules that says who can use it, even if it's the dictator or the, you know, the central state or whatever. Um, there's always an answer to the question, who owns this resource? So every legal system always gives an answer. So you can call that a property right. Um, the question is whether it's a workable property right, a practical property right, a natural property right, and a just property right. So the libertarian argument is that only a certain type of property rights allocations um, are legitimate. And those are the two Hoppe focuses on here with his comment about um, in the capitalist system, we determine these disputes by basically two fundamental rules, original appropriation and contracting, right? And the reason we focus on those is because that's what happens in the natural world, and that's what people do alone before they're encountering other people in society in order to survive. You have to be able to start using things that were, no one else is using, and when you interact with other people, you sometimes trade with them because it's to everyone's advantage, but trading imp implies contractual assignment of property rights. So these sort of natural rules of contractual uh, Assignment and original appropriation is what determines it. So that's capitalism. So then he contrasts it to socialism, in which case who owns things is determined politically, which means by the decision, the arbitrary de decision of some uh, some bureaucrat or some committee um, or some legislature. Um, but because that's political, it's arbitrary, it's not natural, and it always ends up interrupting the pro the natural rights that had to have started civilization going in the first place. So it always results in a conflict. So ultimately what all this gets at and what Rothbard's criticism of communism gets at is that if you come up with a set of rules for allocating property and they generate conflict instead of solving conflict, then they're they're not property rules because property the very purpose of property rules is to come up with rules that assign ownership rights in a, in a in a in a way that can be seen as fair by participants so that they they accept it and acquiesce in it and don't fight it uh, and so that conflicts can possibly be avoided but if you set up a system where conflict is part of the system that's not a property system that's a that's a that's anti property right so if you say well I, I, I'm the central committee. I own it. I'm going to decree who can use this resource. Then you're setting up conflict because all the people whose rights you're you're taking you're, you're taking rights from and that you're dominating, they're going to have um, the 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 goal to basically fight back and overturn you when they get the chance. So you're setting up conflict. Uh, and, and one other point here, Hans uses these uh, delicious phrases sometimes, which are new to some of us who are not steeped in. European philosophy, but uh, like mutatis mutandis, which I always loved when I first came across it. It simply means for for people listening, mutatis mutandis simply means um, making the relevant changes. So it's sort of like, oh, 
you guys accept an argument in this sphere, well, mutatis mutandis, think about it here, right? Mm. So if you accept it here, you see something. So it's like a, it, it, the same argument applies to a different context. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah, so, I mean, to exist in this world necessitates some control authority over resources, right? We, we need resources to survive and someone has to control them, right? Um, and I guess property generally understood as kind of the means that we nonviolently resolve disputes over that control authority, right? right. Instead, of, instead of fighting to the death over every sandwich, we can have some normative structure that lets us deal with it in a more peaceable and really efficient way because you can't. So, yeah. If you think about distinguish between possession and ownership or uh, so I think of control and possession as non-normative uh, descriptive aspects of human action that can apply to someone even when there's no one else around. So Robinson Crusoe alone on his island, he, every every moment he lives, he's acting, he's making choices, he's using his will to do something or not do something, and either employing or not employing scarce, re, scarce resources in the world, which means to appropriate and use these things in the world. Um, um, the basic categories of human actions still apply to him, opportunity cost, uh, profit and loss, that kind of stuff. Um Exchange is not really there because there's no one else to exchange with. Although he could say, from his own point of view, he's exchanging A for B. You know, he's doing this instead of that because he recognizes opportunity costs. But the crude form, the so the need to possess or manipulate or have authority over or control or resource is part of what it means to live as a human actor. That's what it means to act. But when humans, other humans, enter the picture, you have society. You have other people, and these other people are both uh, a benefit and a threat because they're a benefit because we are social, we're social creatures, and we like to live among other people. We can have share language with them. We can, uh, you know, have a meaningful life with them. We can have a personal division of labor, and then we can have trade and the division of labor and the specialization of labor and and all of that stuff, right? So that everyone's better off. Um, we can have culture that can develop. We can have history. We can have, uh, you know, a meaningful part of the human social experience. But the danger is that now we have other independent actors who are also intelligent, who are also self-interested, and they might want to use some of the things that you have been using. And so you have a choice. You know, either you let them do it, in which case you lose the ability to use that resource, or you fight with them. So this is sort of the brutalist world of, of war of all against all. But because we have the social element or aspect, because we have a, a certain degree of empathy for our fellow man, if we're not psychopaths or sociopaths, um, we we tend to value our neighbor's well-being um, in addition to our own well-being. So, and we also recognize the need for norms and rules, and so we come together. So to speak, and we all kind of implicitly agree to respect each other's rights because we know everyone's better off that way. And then the, the core group of humans that are what I would call civilized in this way, say 90% of humanity or maybe more, we have enough resources because we're going to be more productive than the outlaws 
So because we're because we get to trade with each other and have long term projects because property rights are respected within our borders. So we're going to have more resources, more weapons, more um, more people. Um, we will be able to basically have a defensive you know force or, or police force or something like that to keep the outlaws at bay as best we can. So I think that's how society does emerge. Right. So but the idea is that it emerges as a, partly as a practical thing and partly as an intellectual thing. Right. Like we sit down and think about what's fair, what what arguments can we use um, to satisfy each other, uh, to appeal to each other's shared values. And but the outcome of this is what Western civilization was in a crude form. And I mean, the Roman and the British, you know, the European um, civilizations where widely in a wide scale and a broad scale, roughly speaking, property rights were respected in, in, in uh, based upon who who found something first and then who transferred it by con contract. So original appropriation and contract, which are the bedrock of human action in the state of nature, have to play a role in the norms that we form to try to achieve a higher level of civilization. Mm, beautifully said, and you know, circling back to your earlier point there, that the there's somewhat of a appeal, perhaps, to this idea of social ownership, or like we said, the equality of ownership, where everyone owns everything. But that that's an information system that cannot work, right? It simply cannot work because you, as you said, you'd have to ask permission then from eight billion people for every action, every use of every resource and that's obviously that's just uh not workable yeah i think like every everyone arguing about this or trying to come up with a set of rules that they think is ideal or optimal or just you have to at least acknowledge that you know at some point in humanity there are human beings there are thousands or millions of human beings out there roving around the plains and they're doing things right they're acting every day they're they're scavenging they're hunting and they're gathering and they're they're using the resources on the land to try to survive. Um, if you had a rule that says you can never use a resource without getting the permission of every owner and everyone on the earth owns it, then you could never act. You would be paralyzed, and we would just instantly all die out. I, it's impossible to imagine anyone seriously arguing for a set of rules that would instantly require – all the people searching for the rules to be dead, <laughs> right? So we have to have a pro-life sort of uh, bias in our rule seeking, right? We have to we have to sort of retroactively bless or condone or grudgingly concede that when some lone actor goes out into the woods and finds an unowned thing and you starts using it to further his life, he's not violating anyone's rights because and he's permitted to do that. That's the only way we, we could ever survive and advance as a species. And the reason he's not violating anyone's rights is because no one owns it. And if you were to say that he's committing a type of trespass, you'd have to identify the owner, which is why this communism is the only counter to this, really. It's like, oh, well, everyone owns it in common. And it, it, now, of course, this as a practical matter opens the door for a despot to say, okay, well, there's a mass of humanity, but I'm the voice of God speaking – you know, I'm the anointed uh, God-chosen prophet who gets to speak for this people, and I can decide. So it's it's just an excuse to become uh, a tyrant, right? To speak for the people and to make these rules. 
So again, every all every consideration you come at, like it's multi it's multi dimensional in a sense. Like everywhere you come at this issue, you see that the only workable, practical, feasible, fair, natural result is going to be the libertarian private law rules, which is mm. who starts using something first and who transfers it by his will to someone else by contract. So it's original appropriation plus contract, which is, again, why Hoppe emphasizes that in that passage above. Yeah, it's well said. And then I guess, you know, fair, equitable, just, workable. And then also, I guess an argument can be made for optimal. Thank God for that, that it actually produces the most wealth. Like, the you know, the moral, I guess the moral natural law case for property is supported by its pragmatic result, right? You get a deeper division of labor with stronger private property as, as Hoppe gets into later. Um, but before yeah, we get into that, I think... Let me, let me say quickly, I think yeah. if you talk about Pareto, Pareto superiority or Pareto optimality, mm -hmm. uh, those concepts make a certain sort of sense. And uh, I think Rothbard draws on those in his utility and welfare economics. But the point is, that only makes sense assuming cons voluntary or consensual actions on the parts of both parties. So like when you have two people make an exchange, if they mm. both respect each other's property rights, um, then they both stand to gain from the trade ex ante, right? They both expect to do it. That's why they do it. And if neither one is coerced into doing it, then they're both expecting to gain. So all we can say is that the one sure means of increasing social wealth is to respect property rights and to allow people to interact in a consensual, voluntary way. So the only way you can have the Pareto optimality or superiority assumptions is to under, is to assume an institutional background of um, of respect for rights where there's no there's no coercion and there's no dominance, right? So because if I rob you. Yeah, maybe in some sense you could say I'm better off because now I have a, a resource I didn't have before, but you're worse off. And because values, according to the Austrians, are, are subjective and not subject to quantitative comparison, especially between people, you could never say that the net sum result of my robbery of you is that society is better off because you can never say mm. that… I'm the robber. I'm better off by 10 units, and you're only worse off by seven units. So society's better off by a factor of three. Yeah, so, value is ordinal rather than cardinal, right? Value is ordinal, not cardinal, which means you can rank them, but you can't put a number on them. You can't put a scalar quantity on them, and you can't compare them interpersonally. But what that means is that whenever you have an interaction between people, if there's an element of coercion or dominance – then we have to assume that one guy's worse off and one guy thinks he's better off, but you can't assume that that's a Pareto optimal or Pareto superior move. You're, we're not moving society in a better direction overall, even if that was your standard, which is not my standard, by the way. My, my standard would be every person has to have their, their rights respected to be just for the for justice to be done. But even if you switch to that kind of rule, the point is you can never – it's impossible to show that – once there's coercion introduced into any schema of allocating rights or domination or control, then you can never demonstrate that it's uh, that it's wealth generating. 
However, you can do that when property rights are respected and when everyone is consensually, voluntarily um, participating in both sides of the transaction. In that case, you can say for sure that both sides ahead of time or ex ante uh, expect to, to benefit. So if I give you an apple for your orange, we both are richer after the transaction, even though no new matter has been created. There's still just me and you, and there's an apple and there's an orange, but now they're in different hands of ownership, and you you have a better use, a higher use for the apple than I had, and I have a higher use for the orange than you had. So th the net sum of wealth in the universe has been increased simply by allowing a voluntary trade, a consensual trade, uh, undergirded by an understanding and respect for property rights. So this, when we get to talk about optimal or creation of wealth, um, th this all plays into that. Yeah, that's excellent points. And I, I guess, would it be proper to say that when we introduce coercion into the equation, we're flipping the game from like positive sum to zero sum, right? Or, ne or, or negative sum, yeah. Or negative sum, yes. Um, yeah, seems seems pretty reasonable to me. And then... I guess conversely and somewhat paradoxically, there are really dire social consequences when we move from private ownership to social ownership. And Hoppe goes through a, a number of these. Um, I'll read an excerpt now from page uh, 41 in the PDF. Hoppe writes, with this in mind then, what are the effects of socializing the means of production? To begin with, what are the economic consequences in the colloquial sense of the term? There are three intimately related effects. First, and this is the immediate general effect of all types of socialism, there is a relative drop in the rate of investment, the rate of capital formation. Since socialization favors the non-user, the non-producer, and the non-contractor of means of production, and mutatis mutandis, raises the cost for users, producers, and contractors, there will be fewer people acting in the latter roles. There will be less original appropriation of natural resources whose scarcity is realized. There will be less production of new and less upkeep of old factors of production. And there will be less contracting. For all these activities involve costs and the costs of performing them have been raised. And there are, there are alternative courses of action such as leisure or consumption activities, which are at the same, which at the same time have become relatively less costly and thus more open and available to actors. And then he goes on. There's two more of these. Uh, I wonder if you have any comments on the first one before I read the next one. Well, yeah. So he's using his praxeological insight into the structure of, uh, of human action and uh, the role of time preference and the role of um, uh, the fact that when you have a lower time preference, that is, you're willing to wait longer for the outcome of your uh, productive plans, you can engage in a longer-term plan, which is usually more complicated and usually has a higher output, which is why you're willing to do it. Um, um, but you can only have a higher – a lower time preference plan and where you prefer the long-term outcome if that's possible, if it happens. And like it, it, that's only going to happen if there's some, some kind of institutional respect for property rights that you can rely upon. You know, so if you plant 
a, a garden and you're afraid that the marauding zombie hordes are going to take it tomorrow, why would you bother planning it in the first place? right? But if you know you have a stable system of property rights, your neighbors are all willing to pitch in to help spot um, thieves, and the legal system in the community uh, is on your side, hey, you feel comfortable investing some of your resources now and waiting two or three years to reap the harvest um, of a long-term production process. And this, uh, this applies to factories and 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 animals and agriculture, all kinds of things like this, right? Um, but when you have socialism, <laughs> when you socialize it, then you necessarily start reducing all of the as all of the aspects and the incentives that drive someone to engage in a long-term production process in the first place. So you necessarily drive people towards a more hand-to-mouth existence, which makes us poor as a nation in addition to impoverishing the people that are directly affected by it. So – and that's just the first thing he mentions, like if you start socializing production. Like that's just the first of – I think of three he says, right? Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll read the second one now. He writes – Secondly, a policy of the socialization of means of production will result in a wasteful use of such means, i.e., in use which at best satisfies second-rate needs and at worst satisfies no needs at all, but exclusively increases cost. The reason for this is the existence and unavoidability of change. Once it is admitted that there can be change in consumer demand, change in technological knowledge, and change in the natural environment in which the process of production has to take place, and all of this indeed takes place constantly and unceasingly, then it must also be admitted that there is a constant and never-ending need to reorganize and reshuffle the whole structure of social production. There is always a need to withdraw old investments from some lines of production and, together with new ones, pour them into other lines, thus making certain productive establishments, certain branches, or even certain sectors of the economy shrink and others expand. Now assume, and this is precisely what is done under a socialization scheme, that it is either completely illegal or extremely difficult to sell the collectively owned means of production into private hands. This process of reorganizing the structure of production will then, even if it does not stop altogether, at least be seriously hampered. Uh, there's right. more there, but that was uh, that's the only highlight I put there. Do you have comments on that? Yeah. So what what he's getting at is that um, the Austrian understanding of the market is is a process and it's dynamic. And so like um, you can think of the market as always adapting from moment to moment towards some kind of equilibrium, but it's never going to reach an equilibrium, right? So that's just like a way of thinking about the market process. What happens? Um, so Every from every moment, you always have to uh, take into account. But this is, by the way, one of the benefits of the, of having a, a monetary price system. So, when you have a monetary system, it avoids the problem of barter, which is the double coincidence of wants, right? But it also permits rational economic calculation, which means you can calculate in cardinal units and compare different plans for your future activities and try to. Uh, aim for the one that you expect based upon your judgment and your your knowledge uh, will result in the highest monetary profit if monetary profit is your goal. So even though values are incommensurate and and they're ordinal, not um, not cardinal, having a monetary system gives you kind of a, a arithmetic for, arithmetic format 
where you can compare projects. Okay, but um, but that means the counterpart to that is you can always in the in the future when things happen, now you can use the prices for for the other thing, not for predicting the future and trying to uh, adjust to the future, but to to account for the past. And to make it to make an assessment. Oh, did I make a profit on this project or not? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you make a profit different than you thought. Sometimes you make a profit in a different way than you thought. And so then you can reassess and you can move. So the point is, every moment in time, you're always projecting future prices and operating upon that projection. But you're also looking at the past and uh, and evaluating what you did, and you're adjusting. So you have to be adjusting all the time. Because there's no there's no equilibrium ideal state we're ever going to reach. So I think his point is that you, when you have a socialist committee, they just make a decision. It's an arbitrary decision about how to use resources. They're not responding to any of this. They're not using market prices to forecast, and they're not using past prices to to do um, a cost accounting to assess their their past. So they're stuck. They're stuck in amber in a sense, and they're not flexible enough to dynamically keep responding. So it's like gumming up the whole works of the of the dy dynamic market process, which is the reason why, in a capitalist dynamic free market process, you have um, a chance at prosperity and 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 growth. It's because of the way it's allowed to work. Uh, it's allowed to work to let people exchange with each other, um, to trade knowledge with each other, to to uh, to 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 put uh, resources to their better use and to change, adapt and change to, to changing circumstances, and all of that is uh, hampered severely by having a, a centralized um, command control structure. I think I think that's what he's getting at there. That's excellent, excellent framing. Actually, I like the the visualization of it clogging up the gears or of the market process. Right, it, it's. It's making us the adaptation and articulation of the market process is just slowing it down and also causing it to be misdirected and misguided in many cases. It, it reminds me of price signal distortion, right? You start debasing the currency and then the false information starts to propagate through the market and it screws everything up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. 
Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser-focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero-tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Um, okay, I will go to his third point here. Hoppe writes, thirdly, socializing the means of production causes relative impoverishment, i.e. a drop in the general standard of living by leading to an overutilization of the given factors of production. The reason for this, again, lies in the peculiar position of a caretaker as compared with that of a private owner. Uh, a caretaker being someone that was put in charge of the social ownership, I think, basically. A private owner who has the right to sell the factors of production and keep the money receipts privately will, because of this, try to avoid any increase in production, which occurs at the expense of the value of the capital employed. His objective is to maximize the value of the products produced plus that of the resources used in production. I'm sorry, value resources used in producing them because he owns both of them. Thus, he will stop producing when the value of the marginal product produced is lower than the depreciation of the capital used to produce it. Accordingly, he will, for instance, reduce the depreciation cost involved in producing and instead engage in increasing conservation if he anticipates future prices for the products produced and vice versa. 
The situation of the caretaker, i.e. the incentive structure which he is facing, is quite different in this respect. Because he cannot sell the means of production, his incentive is his incentive to not produce and thereby utilize the capital employed at the expense of an excessive reduction in capital value is, if not completely gone, then at least relatively reduced. True, since the caretaker in a socialized economy also cannot privately appropriate the receipts from the sale of products, but must hand them over to the community of caretakers at large to be used at their discretion, his incentive to produce and sell products at all is relatively weakened as well. It is precisely this fact that explains the lower rate of capital formation. I mean, this is just like the knockout punch right here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, and it's the thing is, the way he words these things, it's, 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 it's hard to deny any of it. I mean, so what he's saying is, in a free market, the, the way it works is you have private owners, and they own the – so what what does it mean to produce? Okay, most people have a simplistic understanding, and it's like they almost think like we're little gods creating things out of nothing. Like So I create horseshoes, and I own the horseshoes because I created them, and this, this leads to the intellectual property fallacy. Well, if I create an idea, I should own it too, so they think of creation – or production as the source of ownership. But that's not actually right. We never create anything from nothing, ex nihilo. What we do is we produce. And what does it mean to produce? We're just simply actors. We're, we're people that have control of our bodies, and we have the ability to interact with the natural world around us. When we do that, we can grasp things and use them as means of action or as tools to try to leverage our control over the world. So we just keep interfering with the world based upon what we think the causal laws are, and we attempt to change the future to result in a future that we we, we prefer. Now, sometimes that means, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a free market economy where the specialization of labor, I specialize in selling, I don't know, horseshoes. And I do that because I can make them for a profit, a monetary profit. How does that work? I have to acquire these input factors or resources, which is the raw, say the raw iron, and then I have a, a you know I have a a, a a fab basically I have a you know a, a shop where I can turn that with labor of me or my 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 kids or my or my uh, my my employees into horseshoes, and I sell those horseshoes. But so I'm producing a horseshoe, but all that really means is I'm rearranging the material. Of, a, of an input factor into a different shape, a different arrangement that I believe is more valuable to certain customers or to me. So production simply means to rearrange an input factor into a, a, a more useful arrangement. That's all it means. Now, yes, you use your intellect, you use your labor, you use your creativity, you use your savings, uh, use the support of your community, whatever to do that, but that's what you're doing. But essential to that analysis is that you already owned the input factors for the horseshoe, the, the raw iron. Otherwise, you didn't own the output. So you don't own the output factor because you produced it. What you're producing did was it produced wealth. Wealth – we can think of wealth as um, sort of like the sum total of utility that we get from things that we can control. So yeah, if I take raw metal and transform it into horseshoes… Now it's more useful than it was before, so I've increased the sum total of wealth in the world, and because I'm the one who did it, and I, I have the property rights in those horseshoes, I can sell them hopefully at a profit to other people, um, and they benefit from that sale. 
because ex ante they benefit from any voluntary transaction. You know, they they preferred the horseshoe that I made to the to the shekels they gave me, right? And I prefer the money I'm getting or the payment I'm getting. So so that's how it works. So um, so pr production always is the rearranging of an input factor. Okay. Uh, let me see how I was going to tie this into Hans's point. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. So yeah, but the point is, I'm the owner. So like, let's say I'm a horseshoe maker. I own this raw this raw iron that I either found or purchased by contract from someone who produces raw iron, and I own the output factors. Now, if I'm lucky, or if I'm if I'm fortunate, or if I'm uh, skilled, maybe I can expend labor and effort into transforming raw iron into finished horseshoes and maybe make a, a psychic profit and a, a monetary profit but maybe not because consumer demand is always changing you know maybe the car is coming around and horseshoes are no longer um in uh, in demand and maybe the raw iron that i have stored up would be better used uh to make henry ford's cars but because i'm the owner and my main goal is to make a, a monetary profit I don't care whether I make the monetary profit from selling the horseshoes or selling the raw iron. So I would adapt. I could dynamically adapt and use these resources in their most efficient way instead of just pumping out horseshoes. So what Hans is saying is when you disconnect the when 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 the when the bureaucrats given this control and this order by the central planning board to just do X, like take raw iron and make horseshoes. They're just going to keep making horseshoes, especially if you give them some kind of cut of the sales of the horseshoes. And they don't have to pay the cost of the, of the raw iron because they don't have a market for the raw iron. So they're going to make it a suboptimal decision with the use of these resources. They're going to keep making horseshoes when they shouldn't be making horseshoes in effect, right? Because they can't get the benefit. They're not the true owners of the, of the raw material going into it and the output factors or the output products. Um, so therefore, when you have a system like that, you're going to have to tend to have inefficient decisions in the utilization of resources, which results in waste and in, you know inefficiency and uh, again, in an overall lowering of the standard of living of the populace because you just have uh, less efficient use of resources because of this um, because of this system, which effectively again gums up or 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 or, or short circuits. The natural free market incentives that would apply if you simply allowed the people making the decisions to have private property rights in both sides of the equation. Yeah, well said. I like the wealth, thinking of wealth as the sum total of utility of the things we can control. And when you remove private property, you end up with these inefficient decision making processes and actions that's leading to the the usage of resources in a, a way that creates waste, lower standard of lower standard of living, and wealth destruction. Right, we're actually reducing the amount of things. I guess the utility of the things we can control, because to your point, they just keep producing horseshoes even when no one wants or needs horseshoes, presumably. Whereas in the market, you know, it's, it's like it's like you know, I think the U.S. has like these huge uh, cheese. Uh, caves where we have billions of pounds of cheese because of some you know the remnants of some reagan-esque plan to to store up the 
the stuff that pe people on welfare need for women, women, infants, and children, cheese. So we we actually have these huge strategic cheese reserves in the country in addition to the oil reserves. I mean, none of it makes any sense, right? It's obviously a huge diversion of resources. It's a legacy from some stupid program, but <laughs> it's incredible. A cave of cheese. I've never heard of that. Oh, look up strategic cheese reserves. You won't believe it. That's funny. Okay, as if all that were not bad enough, um, he sort of continues um, and he starts to talk about those that threefold those threefold economic consequences in other terms, uh, I think specifically of labor. And so I've got a lot of highlights here. I'll start with this one on page 45. Hoppe writes, while implied in this analysis of the threefold economic consequences of socializing the means of production, which are reduced investment, misallocation, and overutilization, all of which lead to reduced living standards, in order to reach a full understanding of Russian-type societies, it is interesting and indeed important to point out specifically that the above analysis also applies to the productive factor of labor. With respect to labor, too, socialization implies lowered investment, misallocation, and overutilization. First, since the owners of labor factors can no longer become self-employed, or since the opportunity to do so is restricted, on the whole, there will be less investment in human capital. Second, since the owners of labor factors can no longer sell their labor services to the highest bidder, for to the extent to which the economy is socialized, separate bidders having independent control over special, over specific complementary factors of production, including the money needed to pay labor, and, and who take up opportunities and risk independently on their own account, are no longer allowed to exist. The monetary cost of using a given labor factor or of combining it with complementary factors can no longer be established. And hence, all sorts of misallocations of labor will ensue. And third, since the owners of labor factors in a socialized economy own at best only a part of the proceeds from their labor, while the remainder belongs to the community of caretakers, there will be an increased incentive for these caretakers to supplement their private income at the expense of losses in the capital value embodied in the laborer, laborers so that an overutilization of labor will result. Whew, that is a dense intro. Um, yeah, I think what, so I think what he, what he's getting at here, let's talk about the first one. Um, so I think he's saying that, look, if you're, you're, he's not saying you're a slave exactly, but you're kind of a slave, right? Because you're part of the socialist system and, 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 and the ways you can use your labor are restricted by the government strictures. So what so what he says here when he says um, um, there will be less investment in human capital, what he means is like normally I might go take a course in accounting to make myself better at accounting uh, to get a job at this company because I know that they need a, a CPA right or something like that or MBA or whatever. Uh, and and the reason I would take the time to do that and to better myself is because I could capture the rewards of it. I can get a higher salary. But if you can't do that, you don't bother to, to better yourself. You just become lazier and more indolent. It's actually rational to do that. Like why would I bother bettering myself if 
if my improved skills don't result in any in higher income for me, right? So, so that's the first thing. So it leads to people simply not bettering themselves as much, not well, developing. That's a terrible incentive to to disincentivize self development. Of course, it's horrible. Of course, it's horrible. Um, um, the the third one. Let's talk about the third one real quick. He talks about um, um, well, so the bosses would tend to basically overutilize or overwork the laborers because they can and they get the benefits from that. But that's not again. You shouldn't overuse or overwork someone because then you're using them in a in a less efficient way um and that gives rise to all kinds of incentives of its own now the middle one's a little bit more complicated uh let's go through that second since the they can't sell their labor service to the highest bidders um there's misallocations of labor that will ensue i, I think that's too complicated to to, to draw out here, but I, I do think what he's getting at is there that um, the whole the whole market is is totally disturbed and distorted by all this interference. And so these workers really don't know what they're doing. They don't know what the best thing to do with their time or their labor is. So right. they're sort of pawns in the machine. So it's just not the way you want to imagine uh, an efficient economy or a just economy or a fair economy, right? Right. Rewarding people, letting them have agency and autonomy and independence, responding to market signals, and living their own lives. They're, they're, they're cogs in the machine, and of course, nothing's going, nothing good is going to be expected from that. Absolutely. Um, okay, and then I'll, I'll read one more here because it really comes off the back of the, the last excerpt nicely here. Hoppy writes, last but certainly not least, a policy of the socialization of the means of production affects the character structure of society, the importance of which can hardly be exaggerated. As has been pointed out repeatedly, adopting Russian-type socialism instead of capitalism based on the natural theory of property implies giving a relative advantage to non-users, non-producers, and non-contractors as regards property titles of the means of production and the income that can be derived from using from using of these means. If people have an interest in stabilizing and, if possible, increasing their income, and they can shift relatively easily from the role of a user slash producer or contractor into that of a non-user, non-producer, or non-contractor, assumptions to be sure whose validity can hardly be disputed then, responding to the shift in the incentive structure affected by socialization, people will increasingly engage in non-productive and non-contractual activities. And as time goes on, their personalities will be changed. A former ability to perceive and anticipate situations of scarcity, to take up productive opportunities, to be aware of technological possibilities, to anticipate changes in demand, to develop marketing strategies and to detect chances for mutually advantageous exchanges. In short, the ability to initiate, to work, and to respond to other people's needs will be diminished, if not completely extinguished. People will have become different persons with different skills. Who should, who, should the policy suddenly be changed and capitalism reintroduced, could not go back to their former selves immediately and rekindle their old productive spirit even if they wanted to. They will simply have forgotten how to do it and will have to relearn slowly with high psychic costs involved 
just as it involved high costs for them to suppress their productive skills in the first place. I mean, this is the one that is just mind blowing to me that we're actually re sculpting the characterological structure of human beings, like pushing us to be, what does he say earlier in the book? Drunks rather than philosophers. Yeah. 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 And I think that, yeah. So he makes the kind of offhand point that, yeah, all this stuff makes us less efficient and less productive, but it also changes our character as human beings. Um, A similar point, by the way, has been made by, um, People like Guido Holzman and Paul Cantor talking about how inf- living in an inflationary avir- environment also changes the character of people. Make the makes the way we regard uh, time preference and long term projects and money and savings uh, completely different than what would be the case in a natural free market. Um, uh, and so there, there's a, Guido Holzman has written the, the ethics of money production on some of this and. Paul Cantor had a great article on uh, hyperinflation and hyperreality, something to do with Thomas Mann, but it's it's another good essay. But yeah, so what, that's what Hans is getting at here. Yeah, so his, the essential point is that um, when you, when you have a system that systematically pushes the rewards the rewards away from the capitalist normative mode, which is that the property rights are in producers and users and in, in contractual exchangers, when you erode those rights, then you basically are rewarding being a non-user and a non-producer, and so you're going to get less efficient economic output, but you also change the character of people. Um, and you could also see this in like in more insidious forms, like just imagine the way neighbors treated each other during uh, you know East the East German um, uh, East German Republic when. Um, you know, everyone had an incentive to spy on each other and everyone's uh, you're living in a totalitarian police state and everyone. So all these things can make your character change because it makes people suspect each other. You don't trust your neighbors anymore. You're not trying to trade. You're trying to survive. You know, so all these things systematically harm us as humans and harm society in addition to impoverishing us. Yeah, it it just, man, really rocks the mind if you absorb what's being said here. And I like the way you're framing that. You said a system that pushes rewards away from basically the actors generating the rewards, right? You're separate. It's, you're kind of, um, you're destroying the skin in the game for people, right? You're, you're, you're disturbing the balance of incentives and disincentives in the world. And so I want to ask you this just to conclude here. We're coming up on an hour. Is it the degree then to which property is being violated? Maybe not degree, maybe the the rate. I'm not sure. That's the degree to which we're we're suffering these degenerations, right? That he's describing in terms of productivity, misallocation, and then even character development. So it is it possible that the you know, I had a guy on Matthias Desmet that wrote a book about mass psychosis, mass formation psychosis, I think he called it. And a, th- a theory, I guess, I had from reading stuff like this is that it has to be at least partially related to the violation of property. Like people, you know, when we're printing money very rapidly, obviously we're violating people's private property rights. It seems reasonable to me that that would be a contributory factor. To, the, to these mass psychoses we've seen in the world. Um, 
I'd, I'd just love to hear your thoughts about that because I think in my mind, the way Hoppe is calling us out here, it's like there's a almost a guaranteed way to induce uh, a mass psychosis would just be to hyperinflate the currency, right? Yes. If you if you look yeah. at hyperinflations, what's going on? People have lost their fucking mind. Yeah. So it would it stand to reason that the more we move along that spectrum from you know no inflation to hyperinflation, that we'd kind of get crazier as we went. Yes, I, I think that the interesting question is okay. So I think this is more of a descriptive so, social analysis, try, just trying to identify a phenomena and trying to explain the root cause of many bad practices in society that wouldn't don't make don't make sense in a natural natural society. Why would people have these bad character traits? Why would they start having high time preference? And why would they not invest in their own human capital? Why wouldn't they do that? So it's like it's, it's an explanation, and it's it's an identification, an economic explanation of um, some of the sources of of of, of reduced prosperity. Um, but of course, from a social point of view and from a political point of view. It's not clear which way the arrow of causality always goes. I think these things are intermixed. Um, um, you know, if you somehow erode the people's character because of all these things, then now because of their character and their belief systems that follow from that, they're going to tend to vote for politicians who are going to repeat the same stuff over and over again. So then they become the cause of the cause of it. But then the thing that they're causing, Makes the problem worse, so there it's like a feedback mechanism, right? It's, it's it's like the crony capitalism idea. It's like, well, all the big tech companies and, and you know they they've all like uh, the uh, and then the medical industry they've, they've become basically in the pockets of the state, but some people argue that they control the state. Like, and over time, it's hard to tell who controls who, you know, because the big corporations make monopoly profits because of favoritism by the state. Then they use some of those monopoly profits to donate to the campaigns and the politicians who keep passing the same laws that keep their privileges alive. And so over time, it becomes hard to disentangle which direction the causality runs. I think the only thing we can do is to keep our eyes on an individualist perspective and on justice and on the and the, uh, and on the on the central fundamental values of life, you know, prosperity, decency, justice, and try to identify econ in economic and sound terms what's going on here that's wrong. How we fix it is a strategic or a political issue, or maybe it's just a maybe it's just a fantasy, but uh, it's a different issue, I think. But I think at, at least we have to descriptively identify what's going on, uh, even if we bicker on. The relative importance we attribute to one side or the other of the causal kind of back and forth, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. No, that's that's an excellent point. That, and I think reality is constituted of feedback loops. I don't even believe in unidirectional causality right. necessarily. You see, it's everywhere in biology, complex systems. It's all feedback. Um, and I guess the feedback loop we're exploring here is between individual character development and incentive structures right there's obviously feedback between the two bad characters to me what interests me is the okay the character the feedback loop between individual character development and then the the legal and social policies that we have in society hmm. which give rise to those character flaws but those policies are affected by the politicians who are elected but they're elected by the people who have these character flaws so right 
so it's like a, a bad policy starts corrupting the people, and then they vote for even worse politicians because they're even more corrupt, mm. and they they have worse policies, which corrupts the people even more. So you have this sort of race to the mm. bottom. Mm. So if I'm looking, I guess I'm I, I hear you on that. I'm trying to focus a little more on the feedback between individual character and let's say the rate of property violation or more generally incentives, you know, like as we said earlier, if your property is getting violated rapidly, you're incentivized to consume, you know, so they're pretty close there. But my question here is it's a Bitcoin question. Of course, does it stand to reason that if we have an inviolable private property, which Bitcoin can purport to be right. If you custody it properly and do all these things, it's a very strong property relationship. If we had a world governed on on that monetary standard, that people had much higher assurances of uh, integrity of their property, could that bend our individual character development the other way in a positive direction? Yes. Yeah, I, I believe so, actually. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I don't think it's so crude as to be, okay, our character has been impaired and impeded because of decades of bad government policies welfare and inflation and taxation and 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 regulations and whatever so that we're all like most of us used to be honest people but now we're willing to steal from our neighbors on occasion i mean i don't i don't see it manifesting itself that way uh but we're willing to steal from our neighbors by voting for a ppp mm-hmm. loan or for right. forgiving student loans because we you know Hey, w- once you get to a war of all against all, everyone wants to grab their share before they get, you know, it's like musical chairs. Um, yeah, and of course, I think that uh, if Bitcoin ever becomes sort of dominant in some sense, it will be, it will be probably in response to um, the the um, uh, what do you call it when you have a system that goes into overshoot? It just it just uh, a massive overrun, like a. a, a uh, and if, so when we have hyperinflation, for example, uh, these things are probably – something is going to precipitate um, a, a massive um, uh, uh, retreat to Bitcoin. And when that happens, the price will start going crazy, and then maybe a feedback loop will happen, and Bitcoin will become more dominant, right? And once it becomes more dominant, then it it will become more of, an, uh, of a stable alternative for people to use to store their, their wealth in. And when that happens, yeah, I can see that uh, that vehicle, that and that change of mindset that goes along with it, right? I mean, Bitcoin already is inculcating along its among its adherents, which is still a, a small percentage of the population, but inculcating a, um, a more long term mentality, right? That's what hodling is about. Don't worry about the current down cycle, the bear cycle. You know, just hold on for another five or ten years. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. That's a nice long term way of doing it. That's that's a good character trait. That's Low time preference, right? Um, so if it became more widespread, I think it could start changing human character again. I mean, I could see all kinds of different practices changing. The way people spend money, the way they decide to get a college education or do some other trade, the way instead of getting a mortgage or saving up first or renting or you know getting a cheap car instead of an expensive car, um, being profligate. Uh, I could see it profoundly affecting the character of the human race, which I think is already okay. But imagine if we could like 
triple our human quality just because of a monetary system that reorients our thinking about the present and the future. Indeed, it's uh, it's not fascinating. To be, not to be utopian, but you know yeah. that's it's my hope. I won't say it's my plan, but it's my hope. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, it may sound a bit utopian when we conceive of the deep, bright orange future, but from a more pragmatic standpoint, it seems to me the only thing we can actually change in the world to affect human nature are the incentive structures. Yeah. Like what, what else do we have, right? You're not going to change human nature or it doesn't seem like we are, but we can definitely change the balance of risk and reward such yeah. that we're kind of channeled in a positive direction. Um, I want to read just the, there's one last excerpt here to, to close it out because it's pertinent to what we're talking about. Hoppe wrote, the fact must be recalled that socialism too must solve the problem of who is to control and coordinate various means of production. Contrary to capitalism's solution to this problem, though, in socialism, the assignment of different positions in the production structure to different people is a political matter, i.e. a matter accomplished irrespective of considerations of previous user ownership and the existence of contractual mutually agreeable exchange but rather by superimposing one person's will upon that of another, of that of another disagreeing one. Evidently, a person's position in the production structure has an immediate effect on his income, be it in terms of exchangeable goods, psychic income, status, and the like. Accordingly, as people want to improve their income and want to move into more highly evaluated positions in the hierarchy of caretakers, they increasingly have to use their political talents. It becomes irrelevant or is at least of reduced importance to be more efficient to be a more efficient producer or contractor in order to rise in the hierarchy of income recipients. Instead, it is increasingly important to have the peculiar skills of a politician, i.e., a person who, through persuasion, demagoguery, and intrigue, through promises, bribes, and threats, manages to assemble public support for his own position. Depending on the intensity of the desire for higher incomes, people will have to spend less time developing their productive skills and more time cultivating political talents. So, yeah, perhaps to the degree that we, to which we can enhance the integrity of private property through Bitcoin and other means is the degree to which we can maybe depoliticize human affairs a little bit. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think you're always going to have these kind of plastic political people, but if they're not rewarded, they have to go get a job at Starbucks, you know? I mean, like some people are joking that Starbucks is now, or McDonald's is now uh, well, well willing to employ former executives from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, and, you know, Hayek, Hayek talks about a related thing in, in The Road to Serfdom. He talks about why the worst get on top. Because in democracy, the people with political skill are the ones that are good at climbing to the top of that ladder. But these are not people that are good at the other things in life that produce value, but they're good at wielding political power. So you have systems that reward this and incentivize this, and to the extent they have the ability to make decisions about allocating scarce resources, the decisions will be suboptimal. And so we're, we all pay the price for that, right? They don't pay much of a price because they're rich because they get to they get to get whatever cream of the crop is left over. But 
the average person is suffers from that because we're living in a less wealthy world right now than we otherwise could if we had more a higher degree of capitalism and a less degree of rewarding political minded people with those types of skills i mean do we want people with political skill or do we want we want people with engineering and financial and you know technological skills <laughs> yeah it's a great point great point uh yeah well we could I, I don't know fix the money fix the world a little bit at least so Stefan, thank you so much uh i look forward to continuing this conversation with you again soon do it again soon thanks robert thanks